Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this week we're back again with The Cybernetic Brain uh, by Andrew Pickering. Um, and in this episode we're going to be talking through another two chapters, um, specifically chapter six, which uh, covers the career of Stafford Beer, and chapter eight, which closes out the book and is titled Sketches of Another Future. This, um, this, this beer chapter is, is enormous. <laughs> it's like 120 pages. <laughs> but it is... Yeah, it, it is actually a book in itself. Yeah, this, this, this <laughs> could be like a, a little like zero books uh, like thing. You know, it's like... In fact, I have books on my nightstand that are of approximately the same order <laughs> of a uh, thing. But this is, this is just a chapter in this, um, this monstrous fucking monolith of a book. Really good, though. You know, <laughs> uh, very, very, very good. Absolutely. Um, and as as I was sort of saying uh, earlier, uh, it's good for us as a show, I think, to do this kind of overview book of cybernetics, because as much as we, you know, identify as cybernetic Marxists, uh, we haven't really addressed <laughs> cybernetics specifically onto the show no. until this point. So, so even though it's a huge tome uh, and it, it, it's a really good read, and I think it's it's topical. Yeah, definitely. And like it's 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 only taken us what by now probably nineteen episodes to to finally get back to this. Um, yeah, it's not, uh, not the worst, um, not the worst sort of uh, thing. Um, but yeah, so like this, this, this guy Stafford Beer. I mean, whew, what a what a man, <laughs> what a career. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, very original. Uh, you know, traveled the world. Uh, just a constant flurry of activity and publication. Many accomplishments. A real eccentric. Um, very interesting person. The wizard. Wizard Prang, yeah. Yes. That's his, that's his fucking alter ego, <laughs> which, which, which we'll get to. <laughs> his, his, his OC is uh, Wizard Prang. <laughs> his fucking self-insert fanfic. Yeah, uh. yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. But, um, yeah, just like a, a truly, truly incredible man. Um, but he's, he's one of the bigger figures in cybernetics, basically, uh, especially of the second generation um, yeah, because he was not only a guy who wrote a lot, but he was also the main sort of person who uh, facilitated bringing people together, other cyberneticians, um, especially in the UK. He, he was friends with everyone, yeah. But yeah, so like he, he sort of gets his start in, like he's, he's, a, he's, um, he's a, an Englishman, uh, he was born in 1926, and he sort of gets his start in the beginnings of cybernetics with, um, when he was in the, the British military. Um, he got into kind of operational research, which is a, a kind of um, a discipline for like the kind of scientific planning of uh, military endeavors, which at that time was in stark contrast to the usual way of doing things, which was some syphilitic weirdo uh, in the position of commander, like just fucking stuck his finger in the air and decided, yeah, fuck it, let's do that. Um, um, yeah, and I mean, the... Operations and research is important to sort of history of cybernetics, not only because it was where beer got to start, but also because um, it was really where Wiener also got to start. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like uh, it was uh, OR got imported from the UK into the US and then sort of blew up within the Pentagon. And that was like the origin of American cybernetics. 
so it, it goes both to beer, but also over to the U.S. and that whole story over there. Um, right. So it is it is the proper genesis point of, of cybernetics. Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, but yeah, so like beer gets into this and he starts to kind of use like um, he starts like messing around with like using symbolic logic to organize personnel deployments, this sort of stuff. And then afterwards in his civilian life, he kind of wrote papers on like novel statistical techniques for measuring productivity in manufacturing. And the, the common thread here is that he's he's got this like extremely practical bend, right? Like he's 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 concerned only with like the practical impact of these kind of um, these kind of operations. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting because uh at the same time that he's doing this practical work, he's in the in the British Army in India, right? Uh, he chose to go to India. As far as I understand, he chose to make that to take that uh, assignment. And uh, while he was doing this, all this development of, of uh, OR work, um, he was also doing a bunch of like spiritual work in India um, and sort of like developing his his beginnings as a wizard, uh, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So, like, like Beer, Shabir, um, spirituality is a massive, massive component of his life, including, like, his cybernetic work or just everything about his life. It doesn't come across initially in his writing. Um, he, he keeps that strictly, like, behind the scenes until, like, the mid-'70s, where he sort of, like, opens up much more about that sort of stuff. Um, yes, yeah. that's right. So so it doesn't show up in the OR stuff. You know, as you said, it's very, very practical. But at this time, he is also doing all of this spiritual stuff in India. And, like, what there's this account of, like, his family members saying when he came back, he was sort of, like, a completely different person. Right, right. And, like, but, like, so, like, it, he doesn't he doesn't speak about this publicly very or in his, in his writing, but... In retrospect, it's actually very, very clear that the spirituality was a gigantic well of inspiration for his cybernetic work. Like, it's, it makes a lot of sense once you tie up the threads later. Um, but, yeah, kind of, kind of diving into his, his, like, system and his sort of way of thinking, we, we kind of start out with his, um, his kind of classification of systems, um, which we covered briefly in the previous episode, but we'll restate here, that he, he kind of, like, broke broke various systems down into like categories of like simple complex and exceedingly complex but then also um kind of in terms of like deterministic and probabilistic systems and the kind of the real sort of takeaway here is that like the latter kind of like exceedingly complex and probabilistic systems are the most sort of novel systems in the world and the most interesting but they're also systems that are absolutely impervious to you know, like representation and the kind of techniques of modern science. And so they demand a completely new way of, of approach, which is basically cybernetics, right? Like, like the, the reason you want, you need cybernetics is to actually deal with these kinds of systems, including like the economy, the brain, the firm, um, you know, uh, political systems or social systems or whatever. Um, you know, all the, all the cool stuff in the world is, is actually like these kinds of exceedingly complex systems. Right. Yes. Um, it's a view that, you know, suggests that there there are areas of, of life and of the world where uh, representation can be valuable. Uh, but generally speaking, we're much more concerned with 
these performances. Um, that's that's an adaptation and viability. These are things that we can use to relate to exceedingly complex systems. Yeah, um, and the, the the reason that's necessary is because these systems are effectively unknowable. Like that, they're they're so complex that you can't represent them. Like the, to, to to try and break them down into like knowledge that you can store away is just a fool's errand because. It's like, they're, they're so complex you can't even do that, but even if you could, by the time you've digitized or, like, you know, computed the representation of the system, the system has moved because it's dynamic, right? Like, and your your representation is out of date, right? Like, um, and, it, you know, these the systems, and that's the thing, is that they, they evolve in time and they behave like living things, essentially. Like, they're, they're, they're under this, this constant mutation and adjustment to their environment so that... The only thing you can really do is interact with them on that performative level. Like, if if, if representation is really closed off to you as a as an as an avenue of of, um, of approach, then the only thing left is to embrace the unknowability and kind of get into the uh, the performative um, characteristics of the systems. Uh, which I think is it's like this. This is an immensely fascinating sort of an ontology. Um, which we, we went over in the previous episode. And of course, like for, for, for listeners that are just catching up now, you should really probably go back to the previous one and, uh, and start from <laughs> yeah, there. That's the groundwork. <laughs> that is definitely the groundwork because a lot of this isn't going to make sense uh, otherwise. Because, I mean, we, we get stuck in pretty pretty quickly here with, um, like, one, one of Beer's earliest papers was this sort of thing about, like, an automatic factory um, where he, he kind of envisioned this, like, total automation of production um, the so-called lights lights out factory, right? Right, like it'd, it'd be a factory in which you, you wouldn't even bother installing light bulbs because there simply wouldn't be any humans present, um, which is which is fascinating in itself, right? Yeah, um, and, and in reality, from what I understand, there are like a handful such factories in the world today um, because of the use of you know automation, AI, that kind of stuff. But generally speaking. Uh, they are very much the exception and not the rule. It would have it would have definitely been the exception in 1960. You know. <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, I mean completely. This was a, like a prospect in the future. Yeah, yeah but yeah. like yeah. It's... Um, so one one of his criticisms of of the lights out factory, though, uh, like as the sort of concept generally stood, was that um, you know you could set up this intricate automated process inside the factory, but if the process was not adaptive, then the the um, the factory would suffer both from sort of like unforeseen things that happen within, but also from changes in its environment, right? Yeah, like that the, the market would shift, and this thing would be pumping out fucking Mercedes into a um, into a huge just parking lot out the back, and it would just you know it would just blindly continue doing that regardless of what the um, the environment had changed to. Um, so this introduces the, the, the again the notion of adaptivity that you need this adaptive brain essentially to allow this um, this giant machine to adjust to its environment, and he goes into this like um, this kind of model for for this kind of factory, including this this adaptive brain component. And he, he sort of... And I, I can't figure out what these letters actually stand for, but it's like a T-U-V system, where... Have you any idea what the fuck that's about? Why T-U and V? Uh, I actually don't know. Um, I think there was one thing that suggested to me what the T might have meant, but, like, um, it's... it's I don't know. I don't know. 
I, I'm gonna maybe this is from later. like a different discipline that we're just not familiar with. Okay, like those are, that's common yeah. no, notation. I I don't really know, but essentially the the tea machine is like the sensory organs of the factory, right? Like it it takes in uh, it 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 checks the um, environment of the uh, of the factory um, and also its internal state. Um, and it, it has uh, models to represent what those things are and what they mean, right? Um, so there, there is representation at that level that is functioning, and there's multiple variables that are coming in. Um, and then the V machine is like the motor um, organ of the, the factory. It uh, enacts production actions on the basis of the T machine output. Yeah, but the important one, the really important one, is the U machine, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the the sort of adaptive component, which would um, it's the it's it's the sort of because the 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 T and V machines are kind of like they're kind of almost mirrors of each other, and I think he describes the V machine as being essentially the the T uh, outputs run in reverse, and it's sort of like um, that's the thing, and that's that's all, but like that's direct coupling, and that's fine, and it's like a sort of a finite sort of system, but the the adaptability comes from this U component, which would uh, I think in his words, like continually reconfigure itself in search of a stable and mutually satisfactory relationship between the firm and its environment. Yes, and between between the T and the V, right? Right, it, it's in the it middle of them. Mediating, yeah. 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 And this is like this concept he uses of mutual or reciprocal vetoing. Um, yeah, I, I I couldn't quite I couldn't quite figure out exactly how the vetoing system worked. Do you do you, um, do you have a sense of that? So I think it is like that um, there are representations um, within both the T machine and the V machine, right? And they uh, are going to send information back and forth to each other by means of the U machine. Um, and if, um, okay, so for example, uh, if the 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 T machine makes a assessment of the situation, which is not in accordance with what the V machine actually experiences, then it can veto the T machine, and then the T machine will actually refine its uh, model on the basis of the feedback from the V machine, right? So they they can they can. Uh, or like you know, if the V machine is producing too much stuff, the T machine can veto that, right? Um, so there is a sort of a, a, a negotiation between the two of them um, of of this mutual reciprocal vetoing, um, which is um, yeah, that 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 makes sense, and that's it's um, it's an idea that comes up again and again, essentially in sort of Beer's uh, modeling of these kind of systems, uh, basically throughout his whole career. Um, yeah, because uh, one thing that um, Beer experienced with the T machine, particular, which in particular, which is a thing he actually had a prototype of, was that um, it was very difficult. They, they, you had a lot of analytical difficulties with making sure that the T machine was getting good data, and one way that he dealt with that was with continual uh, self error correcting. Um, so if if the data that was coming in proved to be out of line, that would feed back into the T machine, and then its model would get adjusted in order to be closer to 
what uh, it was looking for. Yeah, that's that is that that's really cool because like these are these are pretty novel techniques, right? In the nineteen sixties, um, this, mm-hmm. this is like really this kind of like um, cybernetic feedback in action, right? Um, yes, and like yes. It, he did actually put it into action in um, a particular. Was it a steel plant or something uh, where they had... Uh, yes, I think that's correct. Right. Where they kind of essentially established um, kind of like, yeah, they, they did the T and V components almost, um, where they had like these uh, these sensations uh, that were modeling the kind of the, the T machine and like feeding into functions, which would pass back into the kind of the outputs of the, the thing. The U machine eluded them, though, because like the computers fucking sucked in the 60s, right? Like they were, they were dreadful things. Um, so... The U machine was simulated essentially by human management. Um, yeah, and what what the U machine would do uh, in balancing those those two sides of the the sensory and the motor uh, in this in the case of a factory was mainly to optimize their functioning so that uh, they could um, you know they could optimize for for profitability. Um, but you know, in the abstract. This could be any number of criteria. It's just in the case of the factory, it was sort of conceived of as, or at least in uh, Pickering's writing, it's it's conceived of as as uh, the, the the profit criterion is what's used to to balance these things. Yeah, it's it's, it's the most obvious example for the factory, and like, and like, but like in, in in theory, this and again, sort of like cybernetics is supposed to be this sort of general theory. Um, this kind of system could be set up for basically anything, and you could like have the the u machine seek uh some sort of goal or like in, in almost any defined terms right like this it's not just um it's not just a technology for optimizing production within factories right like this is for enabling uh, enabling adaptation in any system that whose complexity resembles that of a factory yeah this was just the context of beer's work and you know beer is often concerned with the viability of systems and in a capitalist economy, the criterion of viability is, of course, profitability, right? So that makes complete sense that, that the managers of the plant, as the stand-in U machine, would optimize for profitability wherever they could. Yeah. Um, but that, that, that stand-in U machine was still kind of bothersome, right? Like that, um, there was still no sort of horizon for actually implementing a true sort of U machine, which leads beer onto this like experiment in biological computing, which is like ooh, real fun and and very strange. Um, so the, 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 the key insight here is that like if you need an adaptive brain to be this U machine, well, you know, it has to be one of these exceedingly complex systems. And like the world's already fucking full of these things in in nature and biological systems. So wouldn't it be cool if you could like commandeer one of these biological systems and make it do that job? You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The the the, the actual word that uh, Pickering uses is enrollment. Enrollment. Um, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. So um, he's enrolling. It's 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 really really interesting what's happening here that he's trying to enroll like already smart and adaptable materials instead of creating smart and adaptable materials from nothing. Yeah, this is just it's just such a brilliant idea. Um so bizarre and and interesting and like you know, aside from 
my normal job, uh, I also work as a as a as a game designer and like of of, of uh, tabletop role playing games and uh, just this idea of enrollment and enrolling things into the performance um, is it just it just really gets your imagination going. It's like, well, what, what am I like? What if I like, you know, what if I got like a cat involved in the game or something like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like what, if, like what, what kind of things out there in the world could I, could I use to do interesting stuff? Right. Like it's, it's, it's just, just very, very interesting. <laughs> I, can, I can think of one sort of um, fairly mundane example, but I think it's, it basically illustrates the point though, that like um, if you're on like a, on a Linux box and you're generating GPG keys and there's not sufficient entropy in the system, the program will tell you to wiggle the mouse and to generate entropy. And it's because like it's it's enrolling you, like the, the person sitting in front of the computer who is like you you are a source of entropy, right? And it's like, I don't have enough of it. How about you? You come in here, you come into this loop and wiggle the mouse around and that's what enables um, me to generate the keys you know it's like that's yeah and and to the designer of the program the user is a black box right yes right all you get out of the user is entropy uh, but you can rely on them to provide it yeah yeah exactly the user is a black box the program has no fucking idea whether it's actually a, hum a human or a horse or a you know, a, a mouse sitting on top of a wristwatch where the, 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 the hand of the watch is what's triggering the, the motion of the mouse, you know, it's, it, but it doesn't matter. It's a source of entropy and who cares, right? Like it just, the, it's, it's just the input and the output terminals that matter to it. And the, the performance of the, um, the actual sort of entity involved is, um, is it just happens and that's fine um, because the, the end result is eventually met. Um, and you can also rely on the user to sort of understand when, they need to stop, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's exactly. also it's... nice. <laughs> they're not they're not going to work themselves to death uh, uh, moving the mouse around. So no, yeah, because the the, the um, no that that is an interesting that is a that is a it's an important point because the it's a it's a it's a term that comes up in the the book quite often, like a sort of a reciprocal dance of agency where both interacting systems are agents of their own and have kind of autonomy but they are they are like coupled to each other in this sort of um, dynamic kind of way you know the, the the user stops wiggling the mouse when it is evident that the that action is no longer required and this just really nicely tidies itself up um that's yeah it is, it is fantastic um but in the case of this biocomputing stuff like you get these sort of experiments with like uh, fungoids and sort of animals and like uh, little crustaceans and stuff and like ultimately like an entire pond ecosystem <laughs> yeah it's just like oh wonderful. I know how like what should I use to maximize the profitability of this factory I know let's go use the pond out back <laughs> like, that's gonna yeah. be our computer like what like okay this is like, like that, it's wow. remarkable because it's like getting back to the previous episode with these sort of like modern and non-modern ontologies this is the kind of stuff you simply can't arrive at from a modern perspective <laughs> No, it's like like I was saying before, like like what are you gonna do? Walk up and like start talking to the frogs and tell them <laughs> what to do? Like yeah. this just doesn't work. You can't use language to do this stuff. No. 
and like just the, the leap of imagination it required to to kind of get here is is remarkable but um like th- th- this was all sort of experimental stuff and it never really worked out which is i mean should be evident to, to anyone listening because <laughs> yeah i mean like the uh <laughs> the the sort of like you know we talk a lot about the the nomad form of cybernetics right and that was very evident here where it was like yes uh, beer was employed by the the company uh, to do this kind of OR work, but this was very much like on his own time with like no real sponsorship from the corporate management to undertake these strange experiments. So like he had like like a a, a weird tank in his like kitchen or something that he was he was just like fiddling around with on his own time. So like it's it's not surprising that like his his research didn't yield results because. Like, he didn't have, like, a major funding agency backing his research or anything like that. It was it was, it was was completely that, like, very, uh, you know, stereotypically English, like, gentleman scholar, like, screwing around in his backyard kind of science. <laughs> yeah, down in the potting shed. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is, just, I don't know, there's just something absolutely wonderful about this image of... Um of, of messing <laughs> yeah. around with these ponds and trying to like so like I think one of the problems that he ran into seems to be that like these are these systems are very hard to program like it's it you can you can have a pond but it's actually really hard to try to convince it to do anything that you want it to do so it's, that that just seemed to be kind of intractable and like yeah it's a dead end for now but who knows maybe in the future who knows but, um, yeah I mean he. Uh... He sort of, like, used things like lamps and, like, magnets and stuff to try to to deal with the, the system. Um, but there were, like, problems of, like, say, like, the iron filings he put in the pond, like, polluting the water. So there was, like, signal interference and stuff like that. Like, it was a very messy job, uh, as you can imagine. Like, <laughs> But, you know, the, the, the really interesting thing here, though, um, I think is that uh, at around this time we started to get this idea of ecology developing as, as we talked about in All Washed Over by Machines of Loving Grace. Um, and that mode of thinking was about looking at the natural world around you and conceptualizing it as a like circuit board or as a computer system, right? But what Beer did was he took that idea of a computing machine and he actually tried to instantiate it in a real ecosystem. Well, it's it's a reversal, right? Like it's like yeah, instead exactly. Of, it's a per- perfect inversion where the it's like wow, like okay, and like he did a lot of research for this project too. Like he had like these big like notes and stuff that that Pickering sort of describes digging through, and it, it wasn't like he he put a lot of time and energy towards it, but unfortunately, um, it was a it was a, a failure. Um, and, and Pickering kind of talks a little bit about like subsequent developments in biological computing, like that like little like weird robot that is controlled by a cockroach brain, like um, or, or no wait there was the there's one robot that's controlled by a slime mold and the other one that is like a co- a, a cockroach that is like perched on top, on top of this little like car right and then like. The, the cockroaches' motions, like, make the car go different directions, 
which is just like so funny to me. It's, 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 it's cartoonish. It's, it's this like cockroach cyborg car. And just really, really reminds me of like a, like a China Mielville uh, novel or something. You know, it's really bizarre shit. Yeah, it's 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 pretty weird. But I, I think like so even even for those sort of examples, they're basically kind of like student robotics um sort yeah. of projects like it's not it's not sort of in pursued in the same way that that beer was trying to <laughs> no it's not like it's not like the new google car system is going to be cockroach driven <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah we 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 use machine learning and uh and you know we we hooked up these computers to the internet and like you know had aggregate driving data of like billions and billions of of driving excursions but really what we needed was just to put a cockroach in the driver's seat um yeah. <laughs> a little fucking perspex box with a cockroach inside it just on the dashboard you can see it which is the worst part <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but like this is this is like it, it's it's funny but it's also like this perfect emblem of like this um ontology of performance and sort of uh, the primacy of performance that like he's beer beer is enlisting the these materials because they are they have excellent performative characteristics and by using them directly you can avoid going on this like detour through representation um, yeah like these are these are beings inside of the pond and the pond itself that are like literally outside language they they cannot they like they can't interact with representations in any meaningful sense but they have a kind of intelligence to them nonetheless and that's sort of the brilliance of what what beer was doing there yeah and it's it, i think it's it's that they're they're differently clever is the way he puts it that like um it's it's not that because like the, the question arises of like why what, if you're talking about managing my factory you know to, to produce steel or whatever why would i think the pond is smarter than i am but like beer's thing is that it's not that it's smarter than you it's that it's differently smart like it is it is it is a system that is actually like already in its nature remarkably good at balancing these kinds of books you know and if you just let it do its thing it'll it'll do that very cleverly and i mean y you can play the violin or fucking do whatever and that's that's clever but like this this system here is actually fucking excellent at this task um, yeah, that that gets back to that sort of idea of ontological variety, right? That it's not just like a scalar value of intelligence. There are like different sorts of things we could describe with the world, uh, with the word intelligence out there. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's the a world. huge multiplicity of of intelligences and sort of like consciousnesses. Um, and there's a, there's actually a really wonderful bit here that like you know that solutions to problems simply grow. Yeah, that's that's a really really excellent way of. Um, yeah, it's a kind of like very. Uh, I don't know if I would say profound statement, but it 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 does really capture succinctly your sort of general outlook on uh, on the world and and life. Um, yeah, and like so, before we get into the sort of next big bit, which is the viable system model. Um, Pickering sort of talks a bit about, like, again, the social basis for Beer's cybernetics. And, like, it's, it's again, the same repeated theme of, like, it was quite marginal. Um, and that, like, Beer didn't really have much in the way of consistent institutional support. And instead had, like, a, a career of kind of wandering between various positions and um, 
taking on all sorts of different projects. Which is which is kind of but like there there is there are hints in here of an, a possible alternate history in which this would have actually had institutional support that there was on, at one point the possibility of establishing a national institute for cybernetics and you know he he tried to pers- persuade uh, the Labour government in the sixties to um to to make this kind of like um you know to to, to take it seriously uh, unfortunately it didn't work out but it's kind of maybe interesting to ponder what, what could be different about uh, today's world if. Um, this kind of cybernetics had gotten huge institutional support uh, and, say, government backing in the 60s, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of similar to, like, the the, the, the story of uh, Soviet cybernetics that we saw um, earlier, right? Like, what could have been, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can, it ever, can it ever be otherwise? <laughs> yeah. Could we have ever avoided, like, the whole detour into Thatcher? Uh, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. So like the, the the sort of, I think this is arguably sort of the the meat of um, Beer's sort of system of thinking with the viable system model, where he he published three books in in and around 1972, which is uh, the brain of the firm, the heart of the enterprise, and diagnosing the systems of organizations, and he sort of like developed the ideas he had for the cybernetic factory a bit further, and in particular the the the, re, the real innovation here is that he's focusing on information flows and structures and particularly he's taking inspiration from nature specifically the human nervous system so this thing resembles a spinal column and brain is basically it yes absolutely which is uh strange to look at in the diagrams right like (laughs) it it is it is it is very strange to see this very like clear um analog of the the human nervous system uh, transposed into an organizational diagram, which is also like sort of written in the mode of a circuit diagram, um, which is you know the, that just sort of like weird overlapping nomad character of this stuff is like well it's not really one thing or the other. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit later about that sort of human body element of the VSM, but uh, we should probably describe what the components of the VSM are. Yeah, so like. Um... It's kind of like uh, composed of like various sort of layers, one through five, where the, the lower layers are the kind of like sen- sensory and motor sort of organs, like kind of analogs of the limbs and the, the heart and the liver and this sort of stuff. Um, the higher layers, like th- layers three through five, then are kind of like the, the upper spinal column the, the, and the brain, um, where layer four is the broad equivalent of the U machine. Uh, from um, from his previous endeavors, and there's there's this really interesting sort of property here of like the there being like like local autonomy within each subsystem, and then the subsystems communicate with each other by emitting signals when they when they deem appropriate, and there are like monitoring systems um, that kind of relay information and like provide corrective feedback to the subsystems, but then nothing nothing's really issuing direct sort of commands. It's all sort of like very it's it's all very organic the way it's explained you know yeah like uh so for example like the level one systems can communicate horizontally with each other as well as up the up the spinal column so to speak but then like 
I think it's like level two, doesn't it have like a sort of coordinating function similar to the like autonomic processes of the spinal column? Yeah, something like that where it's like these, it's a, it's a higher level policy that sort of monitors what's going on in level one and then sort of issues corrective signals when it detects things going out of whack. And then there's level three does the same again, but for the lower two. Um, yeah, it's more level three is more of like a getting the big picture and then filtering the need to know information up to level four and five, which which is how organic systems work, right? Like where the the lower the lower components like the like the heart itself just does its own thing. It only issues like you know, like signals only really leave the that sort of region and go to the the higher system when there's like a problem or there's some something to report. Um, and then the higher level systems can take action and so on. Um, but like it's, it's this really cool combination of like autonomous systems with regulation and feedback. And I think it's, it's again achieved through this uh, reciprocal vetoing that came up in the, um, the previous uh, TUV machine. Yes, uh, it's just a, it is now a system comprised of uh, people as opposed to um, some kind of pond monster mm. that you designed <laughs> in your backyard. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, and it, it, is, it is still, like, um, the, the, the way System 4, yeah, is, or, or, like, Level 4 is, is imagined to be the equivalent of the, the, the TUV sort of machine. And it's kind of, like, the way he describes, the, like, it, the, the way this control room would function is, is quite, quite fun, where it'd be, like, sort of a combination between... A sort of um, you know World War Two era like war room like in a bunker a bunker beneath London somewhere, but also combined with like a smoking lounge, where like I can just imagine the the, the management coming in you know into this like wood wood panelled you know lovely sort of nineteen sixties sort of um, setting and like picking up a sherry at the at the reception desk and sort of tr you know strolling in to look at the the charts and stuff you know it's like yeah well actually i think that he says uh in his notes that paper is forbidden in the the command room right like you can't have any any documents to look over or like notes to write you just look at like the diagrams that are shared amongst everybody and talk talk to the other planners about what's happening um, because uh, you know it's about it's about the shared conversation and sort of like open-ended thinking um, instead of uh, you know getting into the nitty-gritty details and I'm sure that this is a thing that he he came up with based on long experience in boring committee meetings that didn't go anywhere right like, <laughs> yeah this would be a, a much more fun way to spend your work day, certainly. Um, right, or at least right. much more stimulating and, um, and much less, uh, less, less dour. Um, yeah, and I mean, this is the thing we actually get to see later down the line in Project Cybersyn, right? Like, they actually built this room. This, is a, this, this actually did get made. So. And it looks really cool. It's, um, yeah, it, it does. Just, it looks really cool, yeah. It follows through <laughs> on the promise. Um, but the, the level above it, like System 5, is the kind of, like, equivalent to the human cortex with, like, the very highest level of policy direction, which would be your, your kind of, like, board level, essentially, where... Like, only the highest level sort of problems should be propagated up that way. Um, yeah, and it, it's, it's very, like, future-oriented, right? Like, it's about, it's about, like, constructing the sort of, like, five-year plan kind of things. Yeah, it's, 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 it's policy direction. And, like, they're, they're issuing 
they're issuing in like from that level downwards it's issuing like instructions in only the, the most coarse kind of sense it's not trying to control level one specifically or directly it's kind of like issuing just policy um which makes this like a really interesting sort of system because it's like it's adaptive at every level um and there's this like this richness of like feedback between between like sibling components and between them and their higher uh components and between the the, the entirety of the system and its environment because like levels four and five are tasked with also kind of reading from the environment as well as reading from the rest of the system right and then the other idea was that it is like recursive right so that the lower levels contain within them levels one to five as well which um which which really really changes the picture right like it's sort of um... yeah yeah like they are also intelligent right like they're they're not just like dumb pipes that transmit information up the up the up the line right like which you know kind of squares to an extent with our understanding of um of uh, human physiology now right that there there is a certain amount of intelligent work that is done at the organ like the sensory organ level and not just at the brain level yeah which is um like this this just really is like the firm in the image of an organism it's replicating just everything about what Beard knew about biological systems. And, like, the th- there's also a bit here about goals, right? That, like, this the entirety of the system doesn't actually set a kind of goal. It's not like a thermostat, right, where you you program it with a specific goal of meeting this temperature. But the, the it, this system is open-ended enough that it can just kind of, like, openly adapt endlessly, like to to any kind of eventualities yeah and this is i mean something that i have designed for a lot in um uh tabletop role-playing games right like there is no given uh objective that you have to achieve in the game you set the goals as you go right um and there is there is a conversation that allows you to do that goal setting so yeah i mean this this kind of this kind of design is very different from the kind of design of like, I'm going to build a clock. The clock is designed to tell the time. It will operate according to a regular pattern and it will be reliable, right? This is this is a very, very different sort of thing. Yeah, it, it seems that like this is the sort of, um, this is the pinnacle of like Beer meeting his own objective, right? Like of trying to design this kind of a system because like this is this is that thing he wanted of the the completely adaptive brain or the the completely adaptive system that would just be able to to behave in this way indefinitely and um, and hopefully survive. Right. I mean, as best it can. Right. Yeah. I mean, because like he talks about the difficulties of actually implementing this system, right? Which is you know a thing that any consultant would run into going into an organization, but. Uh, and of course, when we talk about Project Cybersyn, you know, there were difficulties such as fascists, yeah. imperialism, <laughs> like, <laughs> like all kinds of things. Uh, but the model, model is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in uh, 1970, uh, Salvador Allende uh, becomes president of Chile and uh, Chile and is the first ever like democratically elected socialist president. Um in the world, which is pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. But then in 1971, uh, this guy, Fernando Flores, who was working in the government, uh, contacts Beer asking for help with basically the complete reorganization of the Chilean economy. Um, 
And it is this is explicitly an invitation to implement the viable system model on a national scale. Yeah, so Flores had become aware of the uh, VSM from uh, some stuff that Beer had published and then was interested in bringing him on board. Yeah, which is like... What a like to to go from sort of doing consultancy for like various kind of I don't know steel mills or whatever around around Brighton or wherever he was doing it right like it's to to, to go from that to like oh do you want to do this but like for an entire economy it's it's a pretty big yeah. leap right <laughs> um, oh yeah but I mean they they pulled it off and the the thing is like they pulled it off fucking fast right because. Like, they, they needed to move really quickly. And they actually got yeah, it's a, a... revolutionary situation, right? It was, it was, yeah, it was, like, it was immensely sort of um, fraught and, like... Like, because, like, you have the... the that, that economy was under such enormous pressure, right? Like, that, like, you, they had to get this thing functional basically immediately. And, you know, if you squint at it, they basically did. Because, like, that was... Like, he was contacted in, what, July of 71. Um, by November of 72, they had basically like a cut down version of the VSM installed and, and functioning. Yeah, so from what I understand from reading cybernetic revolutionaries, like there were some large sections of the design spec that they weren't able to implement. But yeah, the the basic sort of like diagnostic informational stuff was implemented. So that's that's pretty impressive. And like especially given the resources they had at their disposal, right? Like they had what one computer? Yeah, it was like um like a PDP eleven or something or some shitty IBM thing. because um, like they couldn't they couldn't import any more stuff or uh, they couldn't afford it right. anyway. And <laughs> they they couldn't afford it. Like you know they were in a situation of massive economic upheaval and. And like, as far as like the like system or like the level one stuff, uh, they were just using teletypes in like installed in different factories and workplaces around Chile um, in order to to do the data processing. And those things have no computational power at all. They're analog machines, right? They're just fancy keyboards. Yeah. They're yeah. They're just fancy keyboards. Um, so like the the computa computational work at those lower levels was being done entirely by humans. And and uh, it was only at the, the highest level that there was actually any digital computing going on. Yeah, but like I suppose it's it's kind of worth pointing out that like they this one and only computer was um situated in Santiago with the with the control facility, which um was uh yeah, this this really impressive looking kind of Star Trek kind of um, uh, room with like these these cool cool chairs with like the the little buttons and the armrests and the the cool projector screens and stuff. Just um, so it looks really awesome. Yeah, it looks amazing. But like it was it was essentially like um, if you look at the the overall design, it was kind of built like a TV set um, because. You have these like walls and they have like the, the screens on them and stuff. And then there's like the chairs in the middle that are like built in a, a circle so that you can have a conversation. But like when you step outside the room, you were just like in a larger room. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> like the walls were just like built into the middle of the room, like uh, like basically like a TV set. Um, and on the outside, they they just had like assistants who would like read out the data that would come from when the person inside pressed the button and they would like pick up the like transparency and like stick it on the screen 
So it was like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like we imagine it to be like, oh, it's like this computerized control room like you would see in some Hollywood movie or something. But really, it's like you press the button and there's just like a light that let lights up outside. And then like the assistant, like the intern just like picks up the transparency and changes it. It's like it's so like ramshackle. It's just amazing how how they managed to create this incredible image of like modernity and like you know the cutting edge of socialist planning right um but really it was just like you know extremely extremely primitive technology that they were using um so yeah it's very interesting so it's like it's remarkable that um the the the, the project kind of like there was a shrinkage in terms of the implementation but there wasn't there didn't seem to be any shrinkage in terms of the scope of the overall project right like that the even faced with these like crippling problems of like just just like complete lack of resources they still went all in on the actual big picture right like um and they they skimped on things like computers and you know having a guy hold up a a flashcard instead of a you know using a projector and that sort of stuff but um if you were to try and do this kind of project with that lack of resources in almost any other context, the, the engineers would just say, no, like, we, we don't have the money, you can't do it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, it's like, because they didn't have this, they wouldn't have this notion of enrollment, right? Like, that's what Beer was doing in the design, was enrolling the population of Chile in the task of computation, basically, of, 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 of figuring things out. Because um, it was like, oh, yeah, like, we don't, we don't have the latest IBM mainframes that the Pentagon has, but we do have a lot of people. <laughs> so, <laughs> <They're just good. laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, this this is this is impressive stuff, and it's like it's impressive to go from this like kind of functioning model of of of, the, of what these kind of firms or these kind of systems would look like to then have it just be implemented at this enormous scale and to have it have it work out except for you know when it didn't work out because of you know uh pressure from international cap- capital and the organization of a fucking coup right like <laughs> yeah yeah because of you know milton fucking freeman and his his pals um uh, <laughs> uh this is making me think what was it like there was that chapo episode they're talking about like the milton freeman foundation for the like murder and extermination of the poor or something like that oh that's it's a uh, it's a joke they co- they they come they come back to this a couple of times where it's like it's that sort of thing and then it's like the you know people people going off to work for the pinochet institute for fiscal reform <laughs> you know, right, exactly <laughs> so like that's where all this shit comes from right like um and uh and and yeah i mean so the the, the sort of signature accomplishment of cybersyn um was in helping to um adapt to this trucker strike that happened uh, during the uh, later stages of the Allende government. Um, So basically the CIA and affiliated organizations um, pretty much appealed to like these like petty bourgeois layers of Chilean society to stage this strike in order to freeze up the Chilean economy um, and 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 try to force Allende out that way before they went to actually just you know sending in the military and 
you know, killing people and rounding them up and shooting them and, and all that kind of stuff that they did. Uh, and so what they were able to do with CyberSyn was they were able to locate points of shortage in the economy and uh, reallocate resources as needed um, in order to survive the, the, the resource constraints that were being placed by the strike. Um, so yeah, so it was it was actually successful in that role. Um, so it did it did actually overcome a major practical hurdle uh, that the government was faced with. Um, yeah, which is which is impressive uh, given that they had two years to design the thing and like it was done on a shoestring budget, right? This, yeah, this, this, I think that's just the the word for this is just impressive. Like it is it is mightily impressive that this could be pulled off at all. And and work, you know, like um, I I would dread to be you know anywhere near this kind of a project just for sheer fear that it wouldn't work out. You know what I mean? Like it's this is this is ambitious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ambitious it takes stuff. courage to takes courage to stage a revolution, and it takes more courage to actually carry it out. Right? Like it is it is it's a it's a big deal. Um, and I mean, and they, they failed, right? Like the revolution failed, but this project in itself uh, could probably be seen as a success. Um, maybe the, the, the one sort of like uh, major uh, question mark that I think hangs over the project, um, from what I understand from, from reading Cybernetic uh, Revolutionaries, is that uh, it's possible that the um, Pinochet uh, thugs uh, collected the information that had been stored with Cybersyn and used that to uh, help with their um, campaigns of disappearing people and like you know fascist fascist repression. Um, so you know this this criticism that Cybersyn was a top down system of like sort of Stalinist domination was like completely off the mark, but the the skeleton and sort of the guts of this project could be repurposed towards that end without question, right? Like, you know, it, it, you can see in it the precursor to some wonderful uh, system of socialist coordination uh, in the future, or you can see in it the uh, precursor to like Prism or some other, you know, NSA nightmare project. Um, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. And it's sort of like it definitely um, it leaves us sort of pondering like how to design similar systems that maybe aren't vulnerable to that kind of hijacking. Yeah, that is that is that is a definitely a valid uh, critique. Which uh, which it's um, just that the the actual critiques that were leveled at Beer at the time that he was working on this project were not were not valid right because like they were criticizing his design intent and his design intent and the actual the actual spec of the project were not what pinochet potentially did with it like we're not sure if that actually happened or not but there's some suggestion it might have so yeah it is a. Uh, but it sounds like he he got it sounds like Beer got pretty sick of this kind of talk about the this sort of like domination aspect of the VSM because you know when uh, when uh, Pickering uh, 
asked him about it, he was just like, ah, oh, like, I am heartily sick of this matter. Like, it's like, I, like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, I've, talk, <laughs> yeah. I've been talking about this for, like, 40 years, and it just never lets up. Um, yeah. But, like, so his beer changes a bit after this point, right, like, 1973, where, like, his writing becomes a bit, like, quite a bit more concerned with... Like, so he, up until this point, he's maintained a sort of, like, very professional sort of face, right, in his writing. But now he's writing about, explicitly about liberty, democracy, and how to, that's the way he put it, puts it, like, how to enable change in a sick world, <laughs> right? Like, that uh, he's, he's taking on an actual sort of political um, project, really. Yeah, he, he writes this, uh, he, he starts out in this Platform for Change uh, book. Uh, with the uh, words, uh, hello, I would like to talk to you if you have the time in a new sort of way about a new sort of world. And he ends it with, uh, I am fed up with hiding myself, an actual human being, behind the conventional anonymity of scholarly authorship. Uh, it's just like... Fuck yes. Yeah. Because, you know, we talked about this, right? That, like, there was this whole side to, to Stafford Beer that, you know, he started, started developing when he was in India uh, that he hid in his professional writing. And also, you know, his experiences of the revolution. He could have just, you know cram those away in a little black box somewhere dark in the corner of his mind and got on with his life. Um, but no, he decided to, to uh, speak more openly and honestly about his, his personal feelings, his personal thoughts, his personal experiences and his, his political views. Yeah. But those, those views are like really, really, I think quite fruitful maybe for, for like our sort of project of like, um, kind of technological socialism or whatever like that. Um, so Beer, he sort of like, he sees like people as complex and unknowable systems and groups of people as, you know, even more complex and being sort of engaged in this kind of mutual influence and reciprocal interaction, right? Like it's it's all about like symmetric social relations, you know, ad adaptive coupling between groups, right? Like, and this is, this is, this is his way of achieving maximal freedom in practice because like this kind of reciprocal coupling involves a giving up of some some freedom right but like the point is to minimize the reduction in freedom and to put all sort of all of these systems on a kind of even footing with each other so that like it's um like there's there's an there's an implication of a sort of classless society in the way he speaks right like yeah and it, it's 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 like social technology right like it's kind of he's then applying the cybernetic principles to like well okay we've 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 explored how a firm should behave. We've explored how an economy could behave under these principles, but like, how should a a society behave in this kind of way? There's a little bit of a diversion here. Then on like kind of well, it's 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 kind of getting on the, the same thing of like well, in this kind of like um, you know society of complex interacting systems, how do you achieve like feedback, for instance, between uh, the government and the populace? And he has this sort of idea for like like a TV feedback dial. Where you would have like a cool a cool little dial on the armchair that would be like from red to green or whatever, or from smiley face to sad face, and um, you would turn the dial you know according to your your feedback on whatever's on screen, and then like, but crucially the dial the, the the overall measurement of the entire population sentiment is also visible on the screen to 
and is is visible, say, in studio for the uh, politicians that are on screen, right? Like, so they can see sentiment in real time. Yeah, and it's interesting because, uh, like, it was a meter of happiness, right? Um, And uh, he sort of specifically said that, like, he didn't try to uh, describe in, in particular what happiness meant. Like he he was specifically opposed to polling because he thought that that polling kind of presupposes its responses by by you know w- giving a specific wording for the question. Whereas this dial was just a dial that said like happiness on it, right? Like it's just like whatever that means to you, then just express that with your dial, right? Um, but you know there were problems with this technology. Like he was like, oh well, like. You could have like an extremist faction that would just get their 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 uh, their members to uh, like basically downvote anything that they didn't like. So you know you see like the um, the steam steam rating system, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like you know the, those those like floods of downvotes that like the gamer gate shitheads. Um, end up like launching against any game that has you know positive depictions of of women or anybody that isn't uh themselves so he was aware of those kind of problems and so he kind of scrapped this project but it does it does show like sort of the ways in which he he thought about feedback um and it's it's like the specific kind of goal here as well ironically sort of like to bring about emergent goals Right, that like the the politicians in the studio don't necessarily know exactly what's being expressed by the needle floating somewhere like at the eighty percent mark. So they they come out with something on on air. They're like, I don't know, what about what about I don't know, taxes for dogs or something. And then the needle goes up, and they're like, okay, cool. Like what's you know, and it's this like creative sort of feedback loop. Um, right, because it could be they bring up some kind of um, unusual idea that like isn't on the sort of predetermined talking points agenda and uh, people respond very positively to it, right? Um, and so then it shoots up the agenda and it's like, oh, really? Like, people like this? Okay. <laughs> people, are, people are into this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Dog taxing? All right. Yeah, let's 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 talk about that. We're getting uh, into some weird uh, places, but <laughs> whatever you guys say. <laughs> Pond computers and dog taxing? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um... But like this is this is like like this is starting to get into some really kind of I think useful stuff because like he zooms out a bit further again to like kind of like looking at populations of these complex systems and feedback loops um, to the kind of like the nation state level really and he kind of like he, in the book we get this kind of observation that like nation states lack any of this kind of like symmetric relation and interaction and also like we get this kind of really astute sort of rundown of like one of the, the like most pressing issues of our time, which was the tendency for crises at this kind of nation state level to spiral out of control because of like one of these like fundamental problems with the modern ontology. And the, the, the example here is that basically the war on terror, right? Like that followed 9-11, which was essentially kind of like the last great failed project of modernity, right? Like an, an attempt to directly impose control asymmetrically on the world and to restrict its variety. And we get shown a sort of a model that uh, Stafford Beer had for for modeling crises, and he sort of sees it as being like that the crisis node is high variety. It is very complex. 
but that the information from the crisis is channeled through low variety channels to you know decision makers and or to or to the public at large and then decisions are made based on this very poor understanding of the crisis action is taken which of course is 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 off the off the mark right like and it amplifies the crisis um because it's and it's it's specifically because it's a failure of representation right like that you you end up channeling this extraordinarily complex crisis in through like channels that are essentially one bit in in depth right like it's us versus them or you know peace versus war or like terror versus whatever and that, that that's collapsing everything to a fucking one bit signal right which is simply not enough to act on and it's like i, th- I think yeah this this is like the, the great failed project of recent modernity that like it turns out that imposing control on the world and reducing its variety is strictly impossible because of the complexity of the world but here we are <laughs> you know right uh yeah, I mean, it, it is, uh, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which we can use these representational and instrumental schemes to alter the world in powerful ways, right? Like, you know, we can, um, we can build, like, the, the modern techno structure of transportation, right? Like, that is a way of, of repurposing the world towards a very specific end, However, the problem is that these systems are not really viable, right? In beer sense, uh, that the, they 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 are not really adaptive, right? Like we get weird things, like, um, for example, uh, in the United States or Canada, there is a huge reliance on the automobile, and there's a huge reliance on fossil fuel, and that ends up sort of perpetuating itself in a way that is totally non-viable, right? Like uh, the individual purchasing decisions of consumers and the overall decision-making procedures for politicians um, proceed according to this like ingrained instrumental logic that was built into the world with the highway system. And uh, yeah, it's just not adaptive. So a lot of the problems that we're having right now about uh, like these kind of like large scale civilizational challenges um, can be seen as uh, symptomatic of that sort of like non-adaptive representational problem that Beer was bringing up, Um, as well as, of course, you know, being symptomatic of capitalist rationality <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, i'm sure that there, there are people who claim they're they're kind of one and the same thing right like but yeah it's there's a lot of factors going on there but like i think it's yeah i think i, I think i'm with beer on this that like there, there is something and it's, it's a point that pickering brings up again and again that like ontology matters right that like but if if your view of the world is if your model of the world is simply incompatible with reality which it seems is the case right that like then you're doomed to failure anyway, right? Like it's the these projects can't work because kind of going back to that notion that like control is simply impossible. Like they it it it, it by definition can't succeed because the goal is impossible, right? Like so, but we're we're sort of in this moment where we're kind of living in we're definitely living in the wreckage of the the sort of war and terror and um, these kind of failures and this oh, yeah. this, this, this was the <laughs> stuff that was um, the kind of downer ending for all watched over by machines of love and grace right like these the palpable like collapse of these uh, modern narratives 
And well, and, the, and especially uh, especially Curtis's uh, subsequent series. Uh, what was that one called? Uh, Hypernormalization. Yeah, hypernormalization. Like that really gets into like the war on terror stuff, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but we we live in this world now, right? Where like. Like so, th- th- it's we're 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 in this sort of wreckage, and it seems like modernity just doesn't work. But um, and like Curtis's conclusion is basically, well, okay, Downer, um, guess we're kind of screwed or something. Or there, there's like a sort of a negative sort of conclusion there. Mm-hmm. But this cybernetic ontology, or this promise of a, like a non-modern way of viewing the world, or the, the way of viewing the world as complex and unknowable, and filled with adapting systems does give us some kind of positive vision of what you know we could do now 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 that we have the evidence in that like this modern ontology may may not work uh what can we what can we do where where can we go from here and this this is potentially an answer to it yeah and the 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 good thing about cybernetics over say just like latour's work is that these are like practical projects that people have engaged in so it's it's much easier to think with them uh, think with these examples than to just have like this kind of um, sweeping uh, critique of uh, of the modern. Um, it, it is is like okay, these these are things that people have actually done. What worked? What didn't? What can we learn from these situations? That's kind of what we get out of this book. We have we have further confirmation that we're on the right track here because like the, the critique is representational, right? But the the practice is is what matters, right? <laughs> yeah, the practice is what matters. Totally. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I it's um, I think this this is this is promising stuff, right? That like um, because like it it it's. It, it's it's evident to everyone that like we can't go on this this same trajectory, right? Like it's it's not actually working. So, yeah, uh, like pretty much everyone really. Yeah. yeah, even the people who won't admit it, right? Like, yeah, it's like <laughs> even the people on the right, even the reactionaries, like they also think that nothing is going right. You know, um, there's a general sense of everything is fucked. So. Yeah, and so like, but also there's there's a sort of um, there's a certain kind of like status quo liberal that would like sort of tell you that you'd best not like you you are in the wreckage of the failure of modernity, but you'd best not open your eyes because like like when the wily e. coyote goes off the cliff, it's only when he looks down that he actually falls. You know that like there's there's a sort of there's definitely a contingent that are kind of like of the belief that if we just keep our eyes closed and don't consider alternatives then this will keep working somehow but what pickering's doing here is he's bringing he's bringing he's trying to bring cybernetics and this 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 non-modern ontology back into mainstream discourse and trying to make it very clear that this is actually all an alternative way of thinking and an alternative way of approaching the world that might be more fruitful than um you know keeping your eyes closed or like not looking down off the cliff <laughs> that you've just run off of you know <laughs> yeah and uh you know he kind of follows beer's advice by avoiding the conventional anonymity of scholarly authorship right like it is <laughs> he inserts himself into this as we said before and also writes it in such a way that it's worth it's it's enjoyable to read and mm. makes you want to read it He's a, um, he's a great so, author, yeah, yeah. and um, yeah. he does the self-insert thing well, which is like a really hard trick to pull off, right? Like he manages the the change in voice is is expertly pulled off. Um, 
But I suppose, yeah, so, like, that's that's maybe more material that we probably should have saved for the end, but, um... <laughs> We, it, 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 it's yeah. the, the war on terror thing just stands out so much in this chapter, like as like a a crucial component of like why why this kind of uh, new way of thinking is is actually necessary. But um, there is one big sort of thing to to mop up before that, and it's this like um, other project that uh, Beer had going on, uh, Teams Integrity, which is essentially like a, a format for holding a meeting, but it has some like really interesting properties. Yeah, it, it, it addresses some of the problems we saw in that little dial project that we saw earlier, right? Where you'd have you'd have just sort of bad actors who would take over the discussion. Um, so integrity is kind of thoughtfully designed as a procedure. It has structure, even though it is sort of like the main inspiration for this project was Beer's observation that in meetings, uh, sort of corporate meetings or or government meetings, those kinds of official meetings, um, there is a bunch of irrelevant crap that gets talked about because it's placed on the agenda. And then at the end of the meeting, when it's like, oh, and is there anything else? <laughs> that is the actual stuff worth talking about that gets like five minutes of time. So he's like, okay, what if we could, instead of pre-dictating the objectives of the meeting, instead work from those and anything else parts and build that into an agenda, right? So that was the purpose of this of this this project, this design project that he did. Yeah. And like the the format is you take you take thirty people with a common interest and you you get them to like come up with a set of like specific topics for discussion, and these these are the, the statements of importance. Then you you kind of get them to vote on the top twelve, and then you kind of structure it like a like an icosahedron, which is a, a weird shape, um, where you, like the, the thing with the icosahedron is it has twelve vertices, like twelve dots, and then thirty edges, like the lines between the dots. And so each each of the each of the vertices is a topic, and then each of the edges is a person. So each person is involved in two topics, right? Like you can kind of see it in this like this structure. Um, and the group then goes about like convening and dissolving these discussion discussion groups around the, the the concrete topics. So that like obviously like you can't be in both both discussions at once. So you have to like figure out a way of alternating. But the the, the kind of property of this is that like as these discussions take place and people flip flop between their groups, the views and the sort of updates to these like statements of importance propagate around the structure, like around this kind of crystal uh, lattice sort of thing. Because people are going back and forth between the two vertices, and each vertex has five con uh, five edges connected to it. Uh, you have this kind of constant propagation across the whole whole structure. Which is uh, which is really cool because it's like this. Um, the thing I like about it is that it's like it's open ended and emergent and all that, but it's also bounded because it's not it's not like a runaway system. Like it's it's kind of like it doesn't have that property of being completely being open ended in the sense of like existing in a continuous space. It's like in this very confined space but it's like structured but it is also like there's a lot of freedom involved and there's like yeah i mean it, it's a very different kind of procedure than what we saw in like the occupy days right like uh where it would be just like people would raise their hand and get up and speak to everybody at once um and then the people would like boost up their voice this is like many different topics being discussed at once in in parallel 
but also those different parallel discussions are influencing one another. So the, the bandwidth is way greater than what we saw in the uh, occupied gatherings. Yeah, it is. It, it, it seems really promising. And like, it's also kind of not vulnerable to the kind of hijacking that um, the VSM uh, could have been. Um, right. Although it is also not really, it's not really a decision or control system. It is just a kind of exploratory thing for kind of like understanding the democratic mood and formulating those things into coherent thoughts. Yeah. So I think you end up then with like the, the end product is the various statements of importance, but they've been refined uh, by the, the process or like various conclusions falling out of the discussions from them. I think I would, I would be really curious to see how that would actually run. Like I would be, it would be really good fun to actually do one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, it, it really reminds me of like a tabletop RPG in the way it's sort of like structured discussion or like a LARP or something, but this is with a rather um, practical aim to it. Um, so yeah. And I mean, another thing he emphasizes like, that the the conclusions that you may come to with the discussion uh they they may seem rather banal uh like the this one uh disintegration that they did uh the points they came out with were like local empowerment the need to push decision making downwards especially in the case of abolishing nuclear war uh point two law and government the move from ownership to stewardship control to guardianship competition to cooperation winners and losers to winners alone and number three how to make world peace Sovereign individuals acknowledge and accept the responsibility of a human world social contract towards environmental protection, security, and evolution of the planet. So, I mean, you know, that's all quite nice, but it is it is not really a program of action, right? Um, and, you know, what he emphasized about the process was, like, it was mostly about the process. Like, what you get out at the end, like, yeah, that can be valuable, but that's not the reason why we're doing this. It's about bringing these different points of view together into dialogue with one another as sort of like a substantive a substantive process of democracy right it's it's the performance over representation thing again right? definitely yeah and like it has such such an emphasis on the democratic and the symmetric sort of relations um that it is like that that sort of later stafford beer stuff like really put into put into action and sort of like the the, the last two sections concern in this chapter concern um cybernetics and spirituality and then there's a little bit at the end about kind of music and like the Stafford Beer's influence on Brian Eno which is a might seem really out of left field but um does have some relevance the spirituality bit is really interesting because like basically like Stafford Beer was an extremely spiritual individual um and like he again he didn't start like really talking openly about it until like much later in his career but like it's actually quite clear that this had profound impacts on him uh, his, even his earliest thinking, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like, uh, so as we as we said, like, when he went to India um, as part of his work with the uh, British Army, he did pick up a lot of spiritual practices when he was there. And, uh, you know, he sort of went through um, a period of, of going from the, the Church of England to uh, to the Catholic Church, becoming a Catholic, and then uh, later left the Catholic Church and sort of just pursued his own spiritual practice, right? 
Um, but uh, more importantly, I guess you could say is uh, there's there's a couple points. Um, one was his sort of interest in, and practice of uh, of tantra, um, and the other was this this uh, hylozoic view of the world, the world as as alive uh, that. Uh, he he sort of carried deeply within him. Yeah, I I find the 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 hylozoism is really really interesting in that it's kind of like it sort of posits like an equivalence between like the like there there are, there are human limits to understanding of the world, right? Um, and that sort of means that there's like this this sort of like basic sort of mystery about like the the world itself, and that you know the the, the thing is that like God is the thing that explains that mystery. Right, which means that like spirit is in nature, right? Like it's not a it's not a separate thing. So we're we're back to the kind of monism again. Um, this like this kind of unity between these two things. Uh, well, actually, look, they're they're not two things. They're actually the same thing, right? Like it's, <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, yes. And so, like for 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 Stafford Beer, the, the the mysteries of the existence of God and the mysteries of like exceedingly complex systems are just the same mystery, right? Like it's there just isn't a difference. Like there isn't a distinction worth drawing between the two. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is going back to like you know the sort of tradition of like Spinoza and Hegel and the. Um, uh, the American pragmatists and all, all, all of those sort of groups. I mean, you could find many spiritual uh, traditions. Like I think like theosophy was the thing that uh, inspired beer a lot. Um, and uh, of course, outside of Europe, there were many influences on him as well. Uh, but there, there's a certain uh, philosophical and, and, and spiritual tradition within sort of like the Western canon that you could definitely place place beer within um, there. Yeah, there's um, there's also this really sort of nice bit about like his sort of kind of regarding nature as its own computer in a sort of weird way that like a river is a river computer computing a river like that all the complex interactions in the world are computed in a sense. But they are computed in themselves and in the act of performance, right? And that, like the 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 results, the, he he sort of has a a poem about like the kind of the Irish Sea, and it's like yeah, he he uh, he wrote this poem, uh, "Computers the Irish Sea," which might help to uh, explain sort of what he was getting at. Um, he says, uh, that green computer C with all its molecular logic to the system's square inch, a bigger brain than mine, writes out foamy equations from the bow across the bland blackboard water, accounting for variables which navigators cannot even list, a bigger sum than theirs, getting the answer continuously right without fail and without anguish, integrals white on green cursively writes recursively computes that green computer c on a scale so shocking that all the people sit dumbfounded throwing indigestible peel at seagulls not uttering an equation between them all this liquid diophantine stuff of order umpteen million is its own analog Take a turn around the deck and understand the mystery by which what happens writes out its explanation as it goes. So it's this this very like 
there's there's a lot of sort of images of of uh, of representation but these are like this is like a performative representation that makes representation redundant right like it is the the performance is sufficient in itself um, right, because like the, the very last line contains that that like the what happens writes out its explanation as it goes. That like the, the there isn't really a need for the representation because like definitionally whatever it is doing is the thing. You know, it's yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> yes, it's it's very very reminiscent of Spinoza to me um, in a way. Yeah, so this is yeah, it's very very interesting. Um, that this this sort of this sort of sense of the sufficiency of reality you know that it just is enough it is it is so plentiful and so deep that uh there is uh you know no need to comprehend it in its totality uh because it is computing itself mm -hmm. you know <laughs> yeah, we're just a part of that. <laughs> it's, um, no, it is. It is really profound. Uh, I I absolutely love that. Yeah, it's great, and it's it, it's 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 performance, pure raw performance, um, and just matter doing its own thing. But the the matter is spirit, also, you know, for for beer. So this is this is just the 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 way the world is, and it's just wonderful, you know. And you you can really feel that off the poem, right? Like that. Um, yeah, he was he was actually a good poet in addition to being a good cybernetician. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's not like uh, not like Marx, you know. No, <laughs> Marx. Uh, he's a, he's good in many ways, but not the best poet out there. So no, did, did Marx wrote some like shitty teen angst poetry or something? Yeah, yeah, it was very like very much teenage teenage love poetry. Yeah, um, but hey, you know his 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 his, his wife was uh, was was convinced, so she stuck with him all through thick and thin for the rest of their lives. It can't all be good, right? Yeah, that's right. Not that's everyone right. can be Stafford Beer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, like when we get into the discussion of his um his sort of uh, tantric leanings though, we get this kind of like really really fun introduction to his um, a book he wrote in like it's like the the adventures of Wizard Prang, which is essentially him and is like kind of kind of outlining his sort of spiritual system. Um but like his 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 writing here is definitely departing way off from the um the kind of like managerial stuff, but is still sort of basically cybernetic. Um, it's not really something I can really speak to though, because like I think that this particular section kind of kind of washed over me a bit because I just don't really have that much of a that sort of um a grounding in this this sort of topic. But um yeah, I, I mean I think that the sort of fundamental problem here uh, with this stuff is that it is. It is kind of evasive of representation, right? Like it is. It, it's like a lot of the knowledge that comes out of spiritual practice of this kind, uh, like you know, meditation, yoga, and so on, is really just like based on testimonial or the actual practice, like the instructional practice, like the procedure for how to do it, right? Like those are the kind of two forms of transmission that we have. And like testimonial is notoriously 
like suspect right like self self testimonial about experience is like well how can you trust that right like there there's a there is in the modern world and and even going back to like pre-modern times there's a deep suspicion about this kind of um writing or or speaking because it's so easy to be a charlatan and to pass yourself off as something that you aren't when the only source of, of, of evidence is your own words, right? Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's, I suppose even we're talking about something that, like, takes years or whatever, a lifetime of kind of deep study or whatever, and basically, by definition, only the practitioners really get it. So outsiders are, like, at a disadvantage already. <laughs> you know, like, and it, it's, like, it's, it's difficult to reproduce even for someone who has a fairly high level mm, of mastery, yeah. right? That, that, and so that means that it is very difficult to test. And if it can't be tested and if the... If there is no uh, third-party testimony about what happened, then it's sort of like our modern structures of knowledge are going to inherently reject what it has to say, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, there has been absolutely an effort uh, among some practitioners, like especially I think among Buddhists, there have been a lot of efforts to like demonstrate effects by means of brain scans. But I am like, I find that to be kind of a trivial pursuit, personally, as somebody who does some of this stuff. Uh, I think it's 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 exactly falling into the trap of um, of of representation over performance, because those brain scan pictures and the the uh, diegesis of what they mean, like the explanation of what they mean, may convince some scientist somewhere that something is happening, but it is utterly worthless as a guide to performance, which is really what you care about. Like, you do these things to do these things. You don't do them to, like, prove to some brain scientist that you're just a great person. Like, what are you doing if that if that's your deal, right? Um, so like, you know, generally speaking, that's why most of the writing about this stuff is the procedure, right? Like, how do you do it? But even then it's like, you don't just sit down and do it. Um, so like, I think in, in this chapter, they have like a, a, a reproduction of like a, um, a yantra, right? Like it's, you know, a, a small, uh, diagram used in sort of tantric meditation to, um, focus the mind and, and to, to put it into a certain state. But like, you know, I'm looking at this yantra right now and it doesn't do anything for me. It's just like, it's, it's just, uh, it's a triangle and a triangle inside a circle. Like, okay, that's, that, yeah, that's great. Like, so it's not like taking a, um, it's not like taking Prozac or something, right? Like it, it's, it's not like you can have this very, um, clearly defined, uh, cause effect relationship. And e I mean, even then there's, there's issues mm. of like <laughs> what the pharmaceutical <laughs> company says it does versus what it actually does. Yeah. But generally speaking, you know, modern, like Western, uh, science that deals with the body is looking for clear causes leading to clear demonstrable effects. Um, and you certainly don't get that with a yantra. Like, you just look at the yantra and it's like, okay, that's just a picture. That doesn't mean anything, right? Um, it doesn't do anything special. But yeah, like, if you practice this stuff a long time, uh, you put a lot of work and intention into it, um, it can have effects. And I think that those effects actually do 
shed a lot of light on what Stafford beer was doing with things like the VSM. Um, like the, I think there's a lot of insights that come from that into the VSM and help to clarify what the VSM is about. Uh, so, you know, uh, we talked a lot about like the level one uh, stuff in the VSM and how that sort of represents like the extremities of the body and, and the internal organs, right? Like these are the sort of like base uh, level sensory organs. And one thing that I noticed in, in doing yoga uh, was like one of the first effects I noticed was that, um, you know, I came into yoga at, uh, in, a, in a state of, of, of being like, you know, just really dysfunctional. My body was just a complete mess. Um, and I, I went there out of desperate, I went to start studying out of desperation because I had, uh, you know, uh, chronic headaches that were brought on by muscle tension. And when I first started to do yoga, it was like, oh, this hurts so much. It's like, but it's not, it's not the yoga that hurts. The, your body, it's like the extremities of your body, so like the level one of your body, <laughs> is already sending out pain signals to your brain right like oh like everything is fucked we need to do something right like that that kind of signal is already going to your brain it's just that your muscles become so tense and your body becomes so rigid that the the information that is coming to your brain gets blocked off right and so it is only when you start to relax your body that that information does start to reach your brain and you do become conscious of the pain that your body is feeling Right. So that, that's like a very obvious thing that you can link to beer's organizational thinking. Right. Like this idea of asymmetry that you're that the, the, the brain is sending out orders to the body to do things, but not paying any attention to what the what the extremities of the body and the internal organs or the basically the lower levels of the organization are sending back up to the command structure. So that I think that that is a, a pretty clear one that you can see there. Um, but, uh, another thing that you could maybe point to is, um, this idea of the, e each level of the VSM recursively having its own intelligence. I think that that is a thing that you also become aware of the more that you do this sort of thing. Like I remember listening to, um, a guy on YouTube who was talking about, uh, martial arts and he was saying that like most people in the world today are profoundly kinesthetically stupid, right? Like, the, you know, we have a lot of representational knowledge and we've been trained into a certain mode of thinking and being, but that we've also been trained into a kind of stupidity because uh, we, we don't understand how to move and use and manipulate our bodies in any meaningful way yeah. <laughs> like, we're just very sort of like stumbling around like we're all tense mm. we just ignore when we're like when our stomachs are upset like whatever you know like when all of our internal organs are all like completely messed up we just try to ignore whatever they are and just like shove down as many pharmaceuticals as possible into our body to keep our functioning so we can keep thinking, right? Because that's that's what our jobs are. That's what we've been trained to do for all our lives. But if you do actually, 
go beyond like that sort of basic level of this practice like like yoga where you know a lot of people go to yoga to get stronger or to uh, get more fit or to uh, relieve stress if you go beyond that level or you know any kind of physical practice you go beyond that level you start to become aware that yeah actually the the ex external organs uh, or sort of the external uh, parts of your body uh, and your internal organs they are they are sending meaningful information to your brain like you you do actually get a more sort of like elevated level of consciousness of what the internal state of your body is and what it is trying to tell you um, and that's that's like you know if you look at an olympic athlete the reason why they're able to do all of these amazing things is because they have a very intelligent kinesthetic sense and that that gets to this idea of like the level one of the vsm actually being within itself its own intelligence yeah that's cool because it's like it's that kind of like consciousness raising or like kind of recursive consciousness doesn't need to be a mystical thing it's just it's just a fact of your body right like your hand is intelligent in its own handiness yeah. you know <laughs> it's not that's a, right that's right yeah. it's not a mystical thing at all it's just like no it's it's self like or your heart keeps doing its thing regardless of whether you're paying attention to it or not like that's that's smart <laughs> yes it it does it, it it tries to do its best but like you know you know like if say uh the like level two of the vsm is not functioning properly then you know it's not coordinating level one properly and it's the same thing if your if your sky if your spinal column is highly compressed then it's going to compromise the functioning of your autonomic uh system right like it is it is a it's a really um clear analogy that he is making between the body and between the the social organism uh the organizational uh system um so yeah so it's um I think that's all uh, really, really interesting. And then I guess the last thing I would say is that if you really work at it a lot, you can get these kind of like, you know, sort of consciousness expanding experiences beyond just the level of like, oh, I can see better uh, because, you know, the, the muscles around my eyes aren't constantly overstressed or, uh, you know, I can, I can smell better because my sinuses aren't closed up because I'm not uh, I don't have muscle tension all the way up my neck like all that kind of stuff you can get at a fairly low level but if you go beyond that you can start to get more sort of like clarity of thinking and then even beyond that it's like your body can start to adjust its homeostatic baseline so that the way you normally feel like just every day like what the the sensation of your just being in your body that you experience does start to change. And sometimes if it can change quite dramatically within even just like one session, it's very rare that it happens. It's very difficult to achieve, but you can do it. And that is very like upsetting and disturbing because like your whole sense of self is shook up because it's like your baseline is moved. <laughs> it's like going back to Blade Runner. It's yeah. like you're, you failed your baseline test, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, like you're, you're not you anymore, right? Like, because like me right now is the guy who's fucking right shoulder constantly aches, right? Like that's, that is me. Right? Yeah. If that, that is a part happening, of being Shane, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. If, if that stopped like, happening, I'd be fucking screwed. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it's, it, especially anymore. if it happens suddenly, you're like, well, what is this? And like your body will try to revert back to that old baseline because that's just what it that is the established sort of like point of gravity that you 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 live your life around. Um, I have the same thing with like, you know, like, oh, my back's messed up and my, my stomach organs are all squished up and it, it feels bad. But that's just normally what it's like to be Kyle. Uh, so when that does change, that is that is quite a shock. Um, and, uh, you know, you can kind of see that as like a thing that beer sort of appreciated um, in 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 the way that he was he was really quite pessimistic at times about how effective interventions using the VSM model really could be because there just are these patterns and sort of baselines that organizations establish and moving those is very, very difficult. And you can, you can absolutely go from there to say the problem of revolution, right? Where you actually are moving the social baseline and it is enormously disturbing and upsetting to a lot of people. Um, just because the established patterns of being are moved. So nevertheless, if you want to actually have that kind of ideal functioning of the of the system that he describes in, in the VSM, you kind of have to get there. It's just, it's very hard work. The performance is hard work. Like the, the abstract picture is like, okay, well, yeah, you know, I can listen to this podcast and take a look at the picture and kind of get the idea, but go out and do it. And it's like, okay, this is a lifelong project, right? Like this is a big deal. So, so yeah. So I think that, that as far as that whole performative and sort of somatic angle goes, all of this tantric stuff um, really does shed light on what beer was doing. And my, my sort of final thought on that was like, uh, uh, to the extent that cybernetics is a um, practice concerned with achieving harmony and deeply interested in diagramming, right? Like we have all these diagrams, these circuit, circuit diagrams, the VSM diagram, consciousness and uh, alterity, like both like dealing with others, right? Like that's a big part of cybernetics is like, negotiating this ontological system um, and also like altered states, right? Like that is also a really big part of cybernetics that we've seen. Um, we could perhaps refer to it as a form of social tantra. So that sounds like really weird, right? That sounds like a big orgy or something to most people, I think. But, but really what it's about is like sort of elevating these levels of consciousness and achieving more sort of like harmony between uh, different parts of the social organism. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting um, and, and definitely falls into that tantric category as well by being sort of like this weird social outsider thing because mm, yeah. you know, tantra has always been a sort of outsider practice even in India. Um, interesting, yeah, definitely. I think I, I like that, that notion of like social tantra, like raising the consciousness of the whole society. It seems almost a shame to kind of like follow that up with like the actual conclusion of the chapter, which is a, a quick detour to um, <laughs> uh, Brian Eno, who, who is, is an artist I respect immensely. But um, basically that like his uh, the, the point here is that his um, experiments with kind of generative music and like setting up rules for musical systems and then letting them play out and then recording the output and stuff is basically influenced by Stafford Beer and cyber cybernetics. Mm -hmm. Yes, which is which is interesting. Like he made that leap from 
reading, you know, sort of organizational literature to to creating uh, a new system of musical production. Yeah, and like the, it's 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 weird that like this because um, like I, I kind of come from a like music production background, but this is all the standard advice now, right? Basically, that to, to use sort of generative techniques or to use kind of novel um, things or to like you know set up kind of unstable systems and let them. Um, you know, let the system express itself and just tape the output, that sort of stuff, is all sort of normal technique now. Um, but yeah, it, this is this is where the origins come from, from cybernetics, which is, um, I, I didn't know, you know, well, I, I knew that it, it originated with Brian Eno, really, that like, or he was at least one of the sort of pioneers of this kind of experimental musical form. But um, I, I hadn't, I hadn't I hadn't known that it was um, from uh, from cybernetics, no. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know that either until I read this book that was like, oh, really? And, like, also, like, you know, what was it, like, Beer sort of, like, tried to get, you know, to become, like, his disciple, like, his successor or something? And then, you know, it was just like, ah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He had him, like, uh, he had him over for dinner or something and was like, oh, you know, we just really, really want to pass the torch to you. And he's just like, um, no, nah, I, I don't. I'm more of a music guy, you know. <laughs> like I would have to change my career completely. Like, what the, how would I do that? Yeah. Um, he just just wasn't ready, you know. But he still went to, on to change the world of music. So hey, that's something. Um, ah, yeah. I suppose it's a, it's a consolation prize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I I have great respect for you know. Uh, I just find it's it's such an unusual bit of this book you know <laughs> like it's yeah and I, I i think it's just probably like you know uh like pickering probably likes brian you know and then also just like uh it's that example of of boundary hopping like one one discipline to another the sort of like protean character of cybernetics yeah um, um and sort of speaking of its protean character it kind of brings us on to the last chapter which is sketches of another future in which um yeah, Pickering kind of like just basically kind of goes over the the themes uh, of of because like the structure of the book has been about like individual personalities and the sort of individual projects, but now he's he's going to restate the themes of the um, the whole history. He also says that like it, it, alternatively, he could have arranged the book thematically, but that that would actually be a completely legitimate way of doing this. Um, and like unsurprisingly, he starts out with ontology that like you know. And actually, another working title for the book was simply the word performance. Um, and that's just the centrality of performance in this thing that, like, in this schema, like, performance is the the star around which all the other objects orbit. Like, it is the, the sun at the center of the solar system. Um, and representation and knowledge and such are only ever really pale shadows of performance or are, like, in service to performance. And yeah, this is um, this is what cybernetics is about. It's about systems that do their performance and do their their dance of agency, which is good. You know, this is this is a sort of necessary antidote to the sort of modern scientific perspective of like foregrounding knowledge at the expense of performance. Yeah, and like the the other sort of big, the really big sort of one is um, power, right? Like the big theme that like. Again, he eventually manages to get back to this like critique of uh, cybernetics as a science of control. And he, but what he does is he breaks down the word control into like, well, it, it, it often means command, you know, which is asymmetric and in framing and 
presumes a knowability in the world, but like what the cyberneticians actually mean by control is influence, which is symmetrical and revealing and unknowable, like it presumes unknowability in the world. And that's crucial, right? Because it, it's far too easy to dismiss cybernetics as that kind of austere uh, science of command, right? Like, and it, it, it just sort of isn't. Um, in fact, quite the opposite, you know? Right. Um, you know, again, I mean, there's that that whole history of, like, how did cybernetics develop within the Pentagon that could fit into that picture. But this is a different story about cybernetics. This is the story about performance, right? Um, yeah. And also about, like, it's, it's, it's actually, like, it's, it's more evident in the kind of um, chapters on psychiatry, but, like, it's about selves and, uh, and the human subject. And um, in particular, the kind of, like, in the same way that we've got a split between a modern and a non-modern ontology, we also have this split between a modern and non-modern self, where, like, the, the modern self is this, like, uh, I think the phrase he uses is a bounded locus of agency. And it's all, like, representation and calculation and will. Whereas the non-modern self, the sort of self that is explored in um, Beer's uh, tantric practice, is a you know a complex system of performance and open-ended possibilities and uh, and emergence, which is like preferable. I think you know <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it was really it's it's really interesting at this conclusion part where Pickering sort of says like you know uh, as much as he was sort of dragged kicking and screaming into studying brain science uh for this project he was also kind of dragged kicking and screaming into thinking about spirituality because that was just something that he considered to be largely meaningless based on his um experiences growing up with the church of england and so he had to sort of confront this stuff in reading beer uh and it was really interesting when um like i actually got to see Pickering talk about this book uh, at, at Kyoto University some years ago. He, he came to uh, came to visit, um, and most of the audience were um, uh, members of the uh, History and Philosophy of Science program. And, you know, Pickering was sort of like, yeah, like, you know, let's talk about science stuff, but, like, also, like, what do you, like, what do you guys think about, like, this uh, whole Zen thing that, that you know, <laughs> Stafford Beer is talking about? And, like, you know, everybody there was sort of like, uh, I don't know, like, like, I don't know, like, well, like, whatever, like, yeah, why would I know anything about that? Because, like, you know, people are here in Japan are largely also modern selves, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. they, they, <laughs> like, especially if you're in a philosophy of science program, right? Like, it is, it is still very much the same kind of subjectivity that's developed here. Um, so it, it is a thing that has become somewhat detached from the East, quote unquote, right? Like, a lot of these practices that originate in the East are often, you know, pursued elsewhere in the world now. Like, this is a this is a very different world than 200 years ago. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was definitely really interesting to, to, uh, to see sort of <laughs> Pickering's perplexity <laughs> and kind of, like, <laughs> confusion over, over this stuff. And then just, like, this sort of miscommunication across cultures where it's like, well, in the East, they must know about this. So it's like, well, no, not really. <laughs> Some people do, but mm. not everybody. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that, that is that is funny. <laughs> But yeah, so like that, that's the spirituality bit, which is another big sort of theme throughout all this. Like that, um, and even for the other cyberneticians, just sort of like um, sort of a, 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 an unexpected crossover um, 
between those kind of realms. Um, but the other the other sort of major theme is, has been the, the, the social basis or even just the sort of lack thereof of like, um, you know, cybernetics is this like marginal and nomadic practice that didn't didn't have like didn't have and was also sort of not compatible with institutional support in many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. We saw that all through the the beer story. Um to the to the point that you know uh, the the U.S. government and the Chilean military had to overthrow yeah. Project Cybersid, right? It's the, it's uh, the ultimate sort of vote of no confidence or whatever, or the, like, yeah. lack of support. <laughs> when, when the fascist the thugs come to kill you, um, you know that you've you've had some institutional rejection. Um, yeah, uh, but um, I mean, again, it, it just it really felt like uh, that whole story was interesting uh, to me because uh, it's it really just sort of syncs up with my life experience of, of what I've been doing and then also just like this podcast in general. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it, is, it is a thing that exists outside of any kind of given discipline and also we don't get any institutional support. We just get uh, the, the support from our uh, patrons. Uh, much appreciated. Uh-huh. Very uh, much. And, uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, and we just kind of go from one thing to the to the next and, and you know, this all kind of really started out because of a chance encounter just like all the stories that you find in this book right like it was it was very much that yeah completely yeah i think we we our credentials are solid as cybernetic marxists in this <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> we're, we're sufficiently like you know social outsider weirdos to uh to get that that, <laughs> that title there i guess <laughs> yeah. oh fuck it is um no yeah it's uh, it's definitely true of uh, of us and like i don't know it's like it it's so strange that this is so consistent throughout this um the field of cybernetics right that like and we 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 have a brief glimpse of a possibility of a um an alternate history in which I don't know, like, we could have had, um, you know, had an, an office for cybernetics in the British government, but no, unfortunately, we don't get to live in that world, so <laughs> here we are. Um, yeah, and I, I remember Pickering sort of saying, like, yeah, it's kind of interesting that that stuff did get institutionalized in the Soviet Union, but it's really not the same sort of, like, they weren't doing the same sort of stuff that he's talking about in this book, right? Because that, that, that was kind of the first thing I asked him when we were at the at the presentation there is like, oh, well, what do you think about like Soviet cybernetics? He's like, well, yeah, it's interesting, but it's, it's kind of a different sort of practice than what, what, what is dealt with in this book in particular. Um, yeah. Um, and the, uh, the sort of last sort of section really closes out with, um, yeah, that the, these, these are sort of sketches for another future. Um, and the, the, the necessity of this is, I don't think we've, we've gone over it, but like the, like modernity is kind of like, has, has quite a few blind spots and, um, that are kind of, kind of really hampering us at this point. Um, and we're, we're not talking about destroying modernity or anything like that, but simply breaking its, uh, you know, hegemonic sort of grip and allowing for alternatives. Um, so that when you approach a problem, it should be possible to choose whether to approach it from a non-modern or a modern standpoint or, or whatever, you know, a multiplicity of, of possible sort of approaches. Because there are legitimate uses of modernity, like you're, you're sort of like, if I get in the elevator 
I kind of want it to predictably go to the right floor, right? And, like, I, I want that absolute control to be there, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so there are... That it is a very difficult negotiation to make, right? Um, and I think like any any of us who who are influenced by this this kind of thinking that you find in this book, we have to make that negotiation all the time in our lives. Uh, but it it is uh, yeah, it's very difficult to think through and to to change uh, the the structures of our society in a way that could be more adaptive, but nevertheless give us a certain amount of uh, basic reliability and and security. Um, yeah, but Pickering sort of like closes out by suggesting that a way to start this would be to basically teach unknowability in schools and to essentially have kids play with cybernetic artifacts. Um, you know, the, the, the robot tortoises and homeostats and, um, and various systems and kind of get this, get this sort of non-modern ontology and this ontology of performance into kids' heads at a pretty young age is, um, you know, maybe the best way to restructure society. Yeah, it, it, I think it could definitely help. And, um, you know, like, I'm, I'm a teacher... Uh, this definitely resonated for me. It's the thing I've thought about a lot. And like one class I do get to teach is like a game design class. And, you know, it's I, I think a lot about how to structure lessons and like how to teach this stuff, because I am I am trying to teach these kinds of open ended cybernetic systems. Right. Um, that That is sort of a characteristic of play or at least interesting play that you are. Especially in a, in, a, in a in a like in a tabletop RPG, you're not bounded by the the limitations of animations and 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 digital assets, right? Like you you just have to continue the conversation. So I really try to promote that sort of thinking. Um, and like one thing I did last week that I can sort of speak to is like, well, I had the I had the the class. Uh, write up like the basics of like a just the the basic premises of a adventure situation for an RPG, right? They're just like oh, like you know what is what is happening, who is there, what is to be found on this thing, uh, what kinds of special situations might you want to see in it, and like you know as as you know sort of like middling commitment students are want to do they just sort of like phoned it in right the first week but i was like okay so like okay this is your this is your assignment all right like uh yeah they just like put it up on the projector and then just like started to run them through it uh with everybody else in the class um and like just give the feedback right like you know like okay well you uh, you wrote this thing. Uh, what are the problems with it? Like, how does it feel to actually actually use this thing, right? Like, instead of just like, here is the assignment. These are the requirements. You know, fill out the requirements and submit it. What does it feel like if you actually use this thing in practice, like as a performance? What does that look like? And then you can see in their heads that it's like, oh. Actually, there are a bunch of problems here that I never really thought about or bothered to think about. <laughs> right. And maybe I should make something good instead of just something that fulfills the basic requirements. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that kind of education, uh, yeah, definitely is, is, is good stuff. Um, yeah, cool. Um, and, that's, and that's the book. Um, it's... 
well, I mean, that's four chapters out of it, but uh, it's a sizable <laughs> yeah, chunk of the may, book. We may come back to it uh, in a subsequent episode of some of the, the chapters yeah. that we didn't cover. Um, I think maybe the stuff on Bateson and Lang and maybe um, Pask might be good ones yeah, to do. Yeah, I think that has a lot of sort of interesting stuff about like social control yeah. and, and, and design, so that could be interesting for sure. That could um, be a fun one to do later, yeah. Um but no, I think this this is this is definitely recommended reading. Um, it's also mm. like, uh, or even just even just the beer chapter. Like, I mean, it's like we've we've skipped over a lot of detail and a lot of um, stuff that's actually kind of worth knowing. So definitely a recommendation to check it out. Yeah, and it's it's a huge book, but it is one that you can just sort of slowly work your way through and enjoy. And uh, there there are, there are a lot of little like discrete stories in there, so it's not like you're going to get lost. Oh yeah, like each each of the chapters, especially the ones on like focusing on a personality, is essentially just self-contained. Like they they make reference to each other. Like Ashby comes up constantly in all the other chapters, but like you you, you get away with it, not really have, not having read the that his particular chapter. So that's all fine. No, this this has been fantastic fun. Um, really really good pair of episodes. Um, and it's you know, it's finally it's nice to finally get back to the the cybernetic stuff. Um, right, absolutely. I think we should we should maybe try and track down some contemporary cybernetics um, and see if there's any good stuff floating around out there. Um, yeah, and I mean there there's so much stuff out there that is cybernetics by another name, right? Right, like complexity theory and and all this sort of yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, we we'll we'll, we'll scout around and see. Um, but yeah, like thanks, listeners, for um, for coming along with us on this one. Um, if you've been enjoying the show, maybe think about heading on over to patreon.com slash general intellect unit and throwing us a couple of bucks a month to, you know, pay for giant books and, you know, basic sort of maintenance of, <laughs> of ourselves. Um, otherwise, like you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod and we're on Facebook. If you just search for general intellect unit, you'll find us. And probably actually probably the best way you can help us out is just like share the episodes with friends or people you know might be interested in the topics because um, like bigger bigger audience is always good thanks for listening and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks bye bye